podcast world with shake and chat building back at you another episode of this life ain't for everybody thank you all so much for the continued support of our brands our podcast hope you all have uh, picked up some of the new episodes on the brand new the foul life podcast all ducks all geese all the time we were getting a lot of requests for that through our fans here at this life ain't for everybody so we've moved all the waterfowl and conservation and hunting stuff over to that platform but we're going to keep lifestyles and everybody that we meet throughout our network across this country, across South America, across Europe, across Canada, everybody that we get to run into and, and form a bond with, we're going to keep those discussions right here at This Life Ain't For Everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by our good friends at Lear Camper Tops. Lear is a strong partner of ours here at our brands with the Foul Life Television, the Foul Life Podcast, and This Life Ain't For Everybody. You want something that supplies you the security and the safety that you need to travel the highways, the freeways, the back roads of America and other places. We depend on them to keep all of our pets, our dogs, our guns, our ammo, our camera equipment, whatever we're traveling the roads with. It keeps it locked up, safe, secure, free from criminal activities, free from burglaries. Lear, L-E-E-R. They're an iconic brand. They're number one in camper tops and other accessories for your rig. We have them at all of our foul life trucks right now, all of our Ford trucks from Corning Ford. Thank you, Lear. Check them out, guys. Support the partners that support us. Today's episode is also brought to you by our good friends at Corning Ford, Corning, California, the number two largest super duty Ford dealership in the country in the small town of Corning, California. It is an unbelievable place to be if you want to see customer service and selection, guys. Go check them out online, corningford.com. Check out the new series of the Foul Life Edition trucks. You're going to love them with Dixie Peck wheels and tires, Lear camper shells, bodyguard bumpers front and rear. You can get them with or without the deck system in your bed. Um, worn winches, rigid industry lights, the new Foul Life Edition trucks available exclusively at Corning Ford in Corning, California. Thank you so much for the support. And again, please support the partners and sponsors that support us. Today's guest is a personal friend of mine, but has an awesome story, an awesome career. Been there, done that when it comes to serving our country and taking on the responsibility of being a pilot. He's still a pilot, a commercial pilot now. We're going to get into that, but his roots and his beginnings started with military and the Navy. And I want, I think it was the Navy. We're going to get into that in a little bit with Mr. Brian Moore, but I wanted to really get into a discussion about the questions that we may have as a general public of, of air travel and what what are the industry is involved in the model some of the stories we hear some of the fears that we might have we have a mutual friend named Andy Perwin that took him into his mid 40s to ever take his first flight based on 100% of being scared to fly. So well, I want to get into some of that. Brian might hear something or a question that I asked today or a transition that I make that he might not be able to talk on. And if he can't, then we just won't go down that road. Like I already know, don't go down the new Top Gun movie road. We're just going to keep that one in our back pocket until we all get to go see it whenever it comes out. I've heard 2020 now, but we, we know Mr. Cruz is working on that right now. Take my breath away. Huh, Brian? You like that? Oh, Brian Moore, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. What uh, What have you been up to the, this uh, summer before fall started? Oh, man. You know, like everybody else, just busy with the kids, enjoying the time that you have with them, taking them camping, uh, doing a little fishing, doing a little hiking, uh, did some camping down at the beach. Uh, that's really it. You know, trying to mix that in, in between work. What part of the country are you, are you, were you born in? I was actually born in Texas. Uh, my father was uh, in the Army at the time, so I was actually born at Darnell Army Hospital on Fort Hood, but grew up in mostly uh, primarily Southern California. What park? Uh, Huntington Beach. 
Oh, HB. Yeah. That's a cool stretch from from kind of Huntington down to like Newport and maybe even all the way down that coast into San Diego. But that whole that whole stretch right there of Huntington and Newport. What's the other big one that I'm thinking of right there? Is uh, Manhattan right there? Well, you got if you go north. North yeah, is got, Manhattan. Yeah, you got uh, L.A. County beaches. You got Hermosa and Manhattan are the two big ones that you think about. And then you got a couple of small ones, Seal Beach, Huntington Beach, and Newport are the three stretch in Orange County. And then you go down further south. You got uh, Laguna. Yeah, you got Laguna. You got Data Point. Uh, San Clemente is probably an Oceanside are the two uh, two more rowdy of the beaches, you know, there, uh, if you will. A little I was thinking of Laguna. I just made that run of Huntington, which they mm-hmm. were hosting the U.S. Open yep. surfing champion. You talk about a zoo. Oh, yeah. You can't even move around that area. And then we hit up Newport and the Pier, mm-hmm. one of my favorite restaurants, but mainly Mexican restaurants. I don't like a lot of Americanized Mexican food, but Javier's is there in Newport Beach. It's amazing. Yep. And then we went down to Laguna, which is a cool little town, yep. and got to, got to experience a lot of that. We ate at another place by Newport Beach the last day. It's it's a little beach club that's got like a two-hour wait all the time. It's a little blue and white building right down on the sand. You get a little buzzer when your table comes ready. You just go lay out on your towel. Yeah. I don't know if that's ringing a bell, but it might be. It's right in between Newport and Laguna. I can't remember yeah. the name of the cove. You know, there's a, there's so many cool little places, like little mom-and-pop restaurants that are just, you know, they're not chains. They're not, um, you know, wide proliferation of it, and they're just these hidden little gems that you find all over the place, whether it's, uh, you know, breakfast spots, a taco spot, or just a little place to uh, grab a schooner or beer and waste a weekend. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of cool places around there and in a place where you could just pull up a bar chair and meet some of the locals. And I mean, it, that, that part of it's awesome. Why being a, you know, I, I consider myself a Westerner. Obviously I'm from the Western United States. I'm not from per se the West coast, Sure, <clears throat> but there's West Coast all the way from, you know, Northeast Washington, all the way down, I, you know, I-5 along Oregon and all the way down into California, the California coast down into Baja and, you know, in that part south of San Diego. Why do you think, live, being from Texas, living in, in this part of the country now, why does SoCal get such a bad rap? Or do you agree that it does? It just seems like when you hear those words... The, the, the gridlock, the traffic, the lifestyle, the arrogance, the, the movie stars, Hollywood. It's like, I love it. I love being on Sunset Strip. I love, I just did the Hollywood sign hike for the first time. I, why does it get a bad rap, you think? Man, you know, uh, obviously, you know, any type of place that you go that's crowded is, and, in, in, you know, that is, rightly so. There's a couple things, you know, the, the traffic is constant there. You know, there's really very few times unless you are completely on third shift or uh, completely uh, uh, off the normal eight, nine to five clock, you're going to be in traffic, you know, even at around noontime and lunch. Uh, you know, my personal opinion on, you know, why they're you know, getting a bad rap, it, it is. It's just, you know, like any major city, you go to New York, I think the the culmination of so many people having things to do, it's going to add to the error of, um, it's going to add to the aura of a little bit of, um, I'm going to say arrogance, but everyone's got a place to be. So it's, it's not like you could sit back and have a personal conversation with somebody every single time you meet somebody. Um, you know, a lot of it is, uh, you know, I, I, it is kind of the same thing. Like I love Manhattan, love going to New York city, love Brooklyn, love what, you know, is going on with that city. But at the, at the same time, you just understand people got stuff to do, you know, and there are, if you have to find your places where you could go and sit down, have a conversation, you know, and, 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 and a lot of it is, I think also in the news, I mean, they've been getting a lot of, you know, crazy ideas out there and a lot of crazy policies and, and some of it are, you know, obviously I'm sure, um, exaggerated, 
or maybe half truths. You know, a lot of the stuff is just trying to trigger an emotional response. But uh, yeah, it's it's. I think a lot of the sheen has washed off of Southern California. You know, just uh, where, where it was in the '80s and '90s. You know, it's it, you know it's starting to dull a little bit. I think you know you talk about policies, and I don't want to get into gun policies or ammo with the background checks now. But they, it is a difficult state. You know, there's a lot of things about California that make you take a double take or a second look at them. And I don't want to go into, I love it. I'm, I'm glad we get to go there. I, you know, we were, I don't even know. I think it was like 18 or 21 miles North of Laguna, Mm -hmm. 50 minutes, 50 minutes. And I'm talking like, you you can't, there's no shortcut. You got to go down through the Canyon, through the foothills. And it's just amazing how many people are congregated in such a small, it's not a huge area. I mean, it's, it's bigger than people imagine LA and that whole Valley is bigger. And a lot of things that people, another thing that I don't think a lot of people understand is how mountainous it is down there. There's a lot of mountain ranges down there and a lot of foothills. You know, people are like, well, you know, coyotes live in, in the, in the out, you know, in the West out in, out in the desert. And I'm like, no, there's more coyotes around LA than you could shake a stick out. The number one, most populated city in America per capita is Los Angeles. There's coyotes all over mountain lions. The wildlife is still down there and there's just a lot of misconceptions about it. But once you get done with that 50 minute drive that, you know, to go 20 miles, there is anxiety that builds from that. You get to relax on a beach, but then the beaches are crowded as shit. And then once you're done with that, you try to take an Uber ride just five miles down the the Laguna strip to go to a, a, a rooftop oyster bar or something it's another 30 minutes. Then your tab is through the roof because we all understand the, how expensive the light, you know, the, the quality of life is and, and, you know, the price of living in California is very high. Mm-hmm. Then you got to take another Uber drive all the way back up. I'm not sounding like I'm bitching. I love being down there, but that is something that if you're not ready for it and you're not open-minded, you are going to get anxiety and get frustrated in a heartbeat. You just got to systematic breathe and breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth or out through your nose and just relax a little bit because it's a great place to visit, but it is very, very overpopulated. Well, you know, like any major population center, you could say you could almost make a, uh, a comparison, the same thing, like Portland, you go up there, um, Seattle, uh, um, Chicago, even Dallas. I mean, they're more probably of the major population centers that are able to spread out a little bit more. They don't have as much of the topography to block where their freeways go in and stuff. But at the same time, I mean, you hit, you hit Dallas at the wrong, uh, at the wrong time of day, you are, uh, you're in for, you know, uh, uh, West coast and East coast like traffic. Uh, have you ever driven, spent much time in, uh, Atlanta is terrible. <laughs> I mean, it is, that's probably some of the worst traffic I've ever been in. Oh, Atlanta is terrible. Yeah. When you start coming, if you start trying to get out of, you know, for this a little bit north and try to drive through the city. Yeah. Gridlock. And I think a lot of it is probably coming into well, before there was maybe one or two major population centers where you went there. Well, now there's a lot more, you know, as, as people, as we, as, you know, the population's growing as everything's, you know, everyone's prospering and, um, you know, you're just seeing more places that are now getting crowded as before there was only like the three major or four major, um, you know, areas where you would get into that type of traffic and have that type of thing. Now they're, you know, it's rapidly, um, uh, these areas are rapidly getting uh, populated that you wouldn't necessarily expect. You know? and, and it's, and you say it like you don't necessarily expect and you take a small area like we're sitting in right now. Think mm-hmm. about this, the vision that you have to have, the, the preparedness that you have to have, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not the assumption, but we knew this part of this area was going to grow out here. 
the funding wasn't there to do what we wanted to do with a, a byway to get from here to there. And if you come out here and I'm so thankful that I don't have to commute, I travel a lot, you know, out of state, but I, if I lived here and I had a nine to five in the Valley, you it, it's, it's from this place you're sitting right now, it's 50 minutes to get from here to a place over where you live, sure. if not more. Yeah. And I'm talking bumper to bumper track tra traffic on this two lane road. Yeah. And you would have thought that, Hey man, we're selling all this land to all these developers, all of these home builders. I know the recession hit and that slowed some things down, but they knew that, that all that land was ready for, to build homes and commercial on. And now when you come out here, when you come out here after the fight, you know, at the five o'clock traffic jam, it takes forever to get back out here. Mm -hmm. There's no infrastructure built around. And I'm wondering if that's the same in a lot of places where they can't plan or prepare for what's getting ready to happen. The hurricane hits in New Orleans. A lot of people move out of that area and move into Tulsa, Oklahoma. They move into Little Rock, Arkansas. Well, are those places ready for that onslaught of new population growth? And is their infrastructure strong enough and built around the, uh, the ability to get those people to and from places in a timely and safe manner? And that's what I always ask myself is like, I remember when I was in the construction world pumping portable toilets, that the talk about this area of Nevada was it's going to blow up out there. And sure enough, here we are blowing up dirt's being cut everywhere. New schools are popping up hospitals, medical centers, commercial buildings, all these houses and personal residences. And the road is the exact same as it was 15 years ago. Well, let me take that back. That was two, 2007 when the recession hit. So we're going on 13 years that when those talks were happening, it's the same exact infrastructure out here with three times as many people. So now I'm not bitching because it's life. We're going to, you, you can't, you can't have your cake and eat it too. I get it. That's why the world revolves and goes around the sun all that many times is because people are, I, I can't say it scientifically. That's the reason it's going. But the reason that we're here is because we've evolved and people are going to keep building. They're going to keep, you know, moving into these different areas that were never inhabited before. Mm -hmm. And, but I'm wondering like, where's the vision at? Why wouldn't we build an easier way to get to and from here to make it safer and, 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 you know, more beneficial for the people that choose to live here. Cause we are bringing in a lot of Californians to live here right sure. now. It's no secret. Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's, I think it's at the end of the day, it comes down to money. You know, I'm sure the city planners have a plan, but you have to get the tax revenue coming in before, you know, they can start building that stuff. I would, I could only assume, you know, and, and then I've seen it before, even, you know, growing up and then I, I lived in several places where the houses always go in first and then everything else. Yeah. I guess once the tax revenue starts coming in, um, you know, but then it, it, it adds to the frustration because now you're taking, you know, the road out here and now you're digging it up. Well, oh, by the way, that's the only road. So now those two lanes have gone to one lane in either direction as they're expanding it and making it potentially a byway. So yeah, in about 10 years, it'll probably be doped out <laughs> with uh, nine years of construction. When they take our driver's <laughs> licenses away. Sure. We're going to be like, oh, come on. We're not ready for that yet. Where? Yeah. So you're born in Texas. You grow mm -hmm. up in SoCal. Mm -hmm. What are you doing as a 15, 16 year old freshman in high school? Are you an athlete? Are you a football guy? Are, yeah, you, was, are you a sports fan? Are you, are your parents really disciplined individuals that, that you were under lock and key, not allowed to have your first beer until you're 21? How, how, what was your childhood like going into high school and stuff? You know, so it was kind of a little bit of a different, probably the non-standard for a lot of the, uh, a lot of, or some of the officers and stuff like that. It wasn't the June Ward Cleaver. I was raised single mom, Southern California. So she worked full time. Um, and you know, it was kind of, you know, sports was definitely my outlet, you know, played three sports, soccer, uh, football and baseball all growing up. And then when I uh, made it into high school, it was the same thing. You know, football was the one that really stuck, um, really liked that. So played, uh, football basically for the high school team and then, uh, would do track. I think that was more, 
uh, so the coaches can monitor your weightlifting during the off season. But you know, was never that great at track. But uh, but football is where it was really what I was doing most of my, with most of my time. What position? Uh, so it, it varied, you know, started out as a linebacker, offensive lineman. And then, uh, towards my senior year, it was basically, it was offensive lineman, mostly center and guard, and then, um, a defensive end. So do you, do you and Wade sit around and have conversations about who the better center was and who? Yeah. You know, we've never had a center off that would kind of, we kind of, I don't think we've had enough, uh, bowls of loudmouth soup to where that, uh, would necessitate a center One off. thing I wouldn't have an off on with him is a calf flexing contest. Seriously. Have you ever seen his calves? They're the Platts calves. <laughs> the I mean, Platts mar- calves. married into the Platts calves. So <laughs> they all got them, huh? Dude, it's crazy. They're kind of sexy. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was kind of envious of Wade's <laughs> calves growing up. I've worked really hard now going into my forties that I want, I wanted Wade's calves my whole life and I'm yeah. nowhere near it still. I mean, yeah. little even he's got them. Oh man, dude. Well, he, he, and his daughter, you know, I mean, they, they, you look at him, you're just like, God, freaking genetics. Yeah. Him and Allie and Allie was a way better athlete than Wade. I think I'm I sure. assume she was, <laughs> thank God the kids look like her. Yeah. So you're, you're playing football. You're yeah. in high school. Let's, yeah. uh, let's talk about four years down the road. Mm-hmm. You're getting ready to graduate. Yeah. What, what's your plan right then? Are you, do you know you're going to be an, a scholar? Are you going to be a scholar athlete at the next level? Are you just going to go to school? What's your plan? So that was, uh, that was it. Um, you know, my plan was playing football and then, you know, looking at going to probably local schools, Long Beach State or one of those other local schools that was there. Um, football actually took off, won some pretty good uh, awards coming out my senior year, had some colleges that were interested. Um, and the colleges that were, you know, some of them were pretty far away. I had a, I had a couple schools in Missouri and um, Louisiana that were looking at me. And, you know, as a 17-year-old at the time, uh, and my parents didn't play any sports growing up or anything like that. So they were they were just happy there, uh, as far as like, hey, we support your decision, whatever you want to do. Um, and what it turned out to is I think it was too much of a culture shock for some of these other schools. So I uh, ended up like a lot of guys will do is I went to junior college for two years um, and just to see what better uh, scholarships I could get out there. And I ended up playing football for the junior college team that was uh, that was local in Huntington. So what, which one is that? Yeah, Golden West College. Golden West. I'm thinking of Syracuse. Have you heard of that junior college down there? I think I have. Is that down in San Diego area? Or? I think it's like by Temecula somewhere. Maybe. Okay. I don't know yeah. exactly, but yeah. one of my buddies played there. So you're, you, you don't, you end up not going to a four-year school. You play junior college football. Yeah. And at the same time, you're getting your basic credits taken care of for sure. your education part of it yep. with the plan to go to the next level of education. With, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's kind of one, everything's a step-by-step process. You know, for me, it was very um, um, pragmatic as far as, hey, I need to figure out you know, this, this is going good. These are the opportunities that I have. And, um, that was the next step. Definitely going, you know, playing football, going to a two-year school and then reassessing, seeing what, uh, um, what offers, you know, um, or, you know, what opportunities came from that. Uh, I knew going into school, I wanted to do mechanical engineering is what I, uh, I wanted to do. So that was kind of the plans. Most of the schools I was looking at were kind of geared toward that for the next, uh, follow on stage. Um, wanted to do some engineering and if, uh, you know, if athletics worked out, awesome. You know, obviously didn't um, it didn't uh, shine away from my uh, uh, from my commitment to both. It was, you know, that's the one thing I always harp on my kids. You know, effort makes up for a lot of things. You know, and if you go balls to the wall as far as your effort, you'll be surprised um, at what opportunities will present themselves. Yeah, opening doors. Yeah, you can't really open doors by sitting on the couch. Yeah. I try to tell people that all the time. It might not be the best circumstances. Even the outcome might not be, you know, big time enough or revenue driven enough or something. But if people look at it and just be like, 
well, if I don't do this, I'm still going to be sitting here watching the same show on this heating pad tomorrow. But if I do it, maybe there'll be somebody there that offers me a job. I might develop a new friendship. I might become, uh, uh, I might be invited in on an investment idea. There's so many things that happen with, you know, work ethic and, and having that attitude of like, Hey man, I'm not just going to be a yes guy and say yes to everything, but I'm really going to, to, you know, try to have that, that mindset of, yeah, man, I'm not afraid to try that. I'm not afraid to meet somebody new. I'm not afraid to, to go into this meeting or sit down at this table or have a conversation face to face. And I, I try to tell people that a lot, just because it doesn't look like it could benefit you at the time. There's a bigger picture. Sure. Something's happening for a reason of why people meet. When I met you, I was like, all right, you know, Rachel's boyfriend. I know Rachel a long time. We, we see each other a few more times down the road, weddings, sons of Nevada, social events, things of that nature. And then there, uh, opportunity pops up to where one day I might get to go up in an airplane with Brian Moore. Who knows if it'll ever happen, but if we didn't take the time to connect and really nurture a friendship or, or stay in touch, then it, the door's closed. Sure. Never happen. You might think of me on a Christmas card or you might think of me in something like that. But I try to always tell people, man, opportunity doesn't come knocking on your door very often. You have to freaking put your foot in the door and see if you can keep pushing the rest of your body through it to, you know, create that opportunity or open up a door for yourself. So, mm-hmm. so you're, you're playing, you're, you're going to the next level of, of education. When does the thought of, do you know that you want to be a pilot or is it just, I want to go into the military first? Well, do you know what? Uh, we used to have this old airport. It's now shut down, but where I grew up, it was uh, an old, uh, uh, small little general aviation field, um, called metal arc airport. Um, my grandfather had a private pilot's license. He was an engineer, had a private pilot's license and he would take me over to this little airport and it was just small little planes. I think the field was only 2,200 foot runway. I mean, it was not big at all. But they had this great little uh, uh, deck, and they had a little cafeteria there. And I could, I would just sit there and watch planes uh, take off all day long. I could just sit there and stare at aircraft. And so that was kind of always in the back of my head. I'm like, hey, I, you know, I'd love to do that. And as you get older, you start doing a little bit more research. And, you know, um, there are several schools that are uh, – or there's a couple schools on the West Coast that are um, – there are, I, uh, let me scratch that. There's not a lot of aviation programs on the West Coast as far as actual flying uh, and things of that nature. And I had some uh, uh, relatives and friends that were in the aerospace world that said, hey, major in mechanical engineering. Because at the time, they're like, yeah, we want guys with that broader engineering brushstroke as opposed to being specialized in aerospace. So that was kind of what was driving the factor. I'm like, hey, I'll go and get this broad stroke in engineering. You know, but uh, um, if somehow something came up that I could go flying. I'll definitely entertain that. But at the time in junior college, that was not, uh, you know, the next step at the time was engineering. But your uncle's taking you up in like what a little Cessna 135. Still, or still never been in a plane at this point. Still had never been in a plane. Never at this been point. in a plane. You just get, get to watch him take off. Yeah, and I was land. just watching and land. You know, my grandfather, he let his, uh, his medical expire. So he had a private pilots and, and his grandfather. Okay. Yeah. But he never, um, uh, he never had, uh, or he, I never went flying with him. His, his certificates were not, uh, were expired at that point. So you're in your twenties right now? I'm probably, I was 19, 18. And 19. you hadn't been on a, a flight ever no. of any, ex, any extent. How did you, you drove from Texas to SoCal? Uh, no, I've been on commercial planes. Commercial planes. Yeah. Okay. So you'd been in an airplane. Yes. Yeah. So you, you, what's going on in your head though? You're studying at a, where did you end up going to a four-year school? So I ended up, uh, ended up doing well enough, got a scholarship to uh, Kent State University in Ohio. 
So I went out there. There's a lot more programs, uh, aviation style programs out there. Um, and originally went out there. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it was, they had a small aerospace program. Uh, the um, the uh, university actually owned an airport, had about 30 aircraft. So uh, the coaches didn't even know about it on my recruiting visit. And it was like the night before I was supposed to leave uh, that the coaches, uh, through talking with one of the other guys that was one of the hosts, uh, it, he let it be known that his uh, – his uh, roommate was doing the aerospace program. And I guess when I'm, you know, I was engaging with this guy that it wasn't even my sponsor on the trip, the coaches picked up wind of that and they're like, Hey, would, would that affect your decision to come here? I'm like, Oh, absolutely. So So you're on a recruiting trip for football. I'm on a recruiting. Yeah. I'm on a recruiting trip for football. So no kidding. They, uh, um, the coaches went out and they, uh, they called up the, uh, or they picked me up. I'm supposed to leave the next day. So this was at dinner. I think a Saturday I was supposed to leave on Sunday Anyway, the, uh, on that Sunday morning, coaches picked me up super early. They drove me out to the airport, and they had, I had the dean of the, uh, the aerospace program, and then we had the chief flight instructor that was out there, and they took me around a plane and everything like that. And uh, I still remember this day. I mean, at the time, it was a great school, but it didn't have my major. Um, you know, I'd previously made my uh, decision or made my mind up based on the other recruiting visits uh, that I took. But anyway, after doing that, Came back and I was like, "Yep." Yeah. Uh, told my mom, "I'm like, yeah, I'm going to Kent State University. Uh, that's that's uh, that's the place for me." So uh, it allowed me to switch my major to uh, aerospace, and then I uh, was able to play football and fly airplanes. So that uh, that absolutely did not suck. So how much different is this engineering, mechanical engineering, the credentials and the the criteria? How much different is it from aerospace? Was it a huge shift? I don't, you know, at the time, uh, no, because I still had the, just the, the general prereqs, you know, so any type of bachelor of science, you have a lot of the same prereqs, uh, and now going after, you know, two years of that going into junior year, that's when you really start specializing. So for me, uh, it was a pretty easy transition. Um, but aerospace just sounds so much more genius to me than, and I'm not, I know engineers are sharp, I get it, but aerospace sounds like, you know, that that's NASA shit, right? Well, it can be. I mean, it's, a, it's like anything else. It's a, it's a broad spectrum of what you specialize into. You know, you could get, uh, you know, you could get guys that go into an aerospace degree and specialize in astrophysics, guys that uh, specialize in aerodynamics. You know, uh, my specialty was aerospace systems and flight. So it was basically learning, you know, um, anything that was on an airplane, avionics, uh, power plants, fuel systems, a lot of, uh, you know, system uh, structures and uh, system construction along with actually physically applying that in the, uh, the practical application, i.e. going out and actually flying the planes. So you're a D1 football player now yeah. studying aerospace. Yeah. And what is that like? Is that because the, the schedule of a college athlete is tiresome. It's exhausting. It's, it's tough. 12, 18 units, 15 units a semester. You got morning weights. You got, you got classroom time. You got scouting. You got, you got film breakdown. Then you got all the physical part of the practices and, and pregame, all that stuff. I mean, yeah. how can you do, be an aerospace, uh, you know, student? playing full-time football it was uh it was tough and when I told the uh you know you have your academic advisors I know you played a little baseball in college and 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 stuff like that but you you had your academic advisors and I told them this is what I want to do and you kind of get the the shuttered look like hey that's a little bit push it up for our athletes and I'm like no I'm gonna do this and it turned out I was only the second guy in school history uh or up to that point that they knew of that actually was able to do it the previous guy was a 
you know, had gone to school about 15 years prior and he was able to play football, be a starter and uh, uh, major in aerospace. So it does take some creative scheduling. Obviously, during the fall semester, it was a fairly light load. Any any class that wasn't uh, a physics that had a lab or an engineering class with a lab, any any classes that didn't have a lab um, really couldn't take during or that that had a lab. I really couldn't take during the fall semester just because you spend, like you said, so much time on the road Uh, schedules. They eke or they, uh, you know, they they cut down a little bit in the spring semester, so I was able to take some of those more um, difficult classes with labs. Um, but honestly, I had to stay in school. Like during, you know, uh, uh, we offered courses in winter recess, and we also offered summer school courses. So I just had to, based on my availability with the program, you know, the demands with the program and demands with the uh, um, with the my major, you know, I just had to get the classes and stay in school. Uh, the entire all year round until I could get the classes that I need in, you know, and, and, and fit them into the schedule. So in all fees, obviously the summers is when, especially the winters, I don't know if, how many of your listeners are up in the Northeast Ohio areas, but they can, uh, the weather can be fairly, cold. Unpre- well, cold and, but just <coughs> unpredictable, you unpredictable. know, uh, you know, you sit there and it's clear in a million right now, by the time you go out there and you do your pre-flight and you come up and you all of a sudden it's freezing rain. You're like, well, I guess we're not going flying today. So, you know, being able to do that. So I did vast majority of my, my flight training was during the summers. So when go back for a second, when you decide to go aerospace, mm-hmm. did you already make it up in your mind that you were going to go after being a pilot? Yeah. So that was, that was already that was said and done. And that was actually part of the degree program. So it wasn't just taking the classes. I actually had to fly in, in part of my degree curriculum. I had to be a certified flight instructor, um, to, con- to complete the course. So what, what day or how long into your junior year of college, mm-hmm. You're uh, 18, you're 20 now? No, you're 19, still yeah. 20. Yeah. So how long into your, your tenure here at Kent State do you get introduced to your the cockpit in your first flight? Uh, so first flight would have been the semester, the first semester, or the, sorry, the second semester. So second it was the, the spring semester. So I went through, did a, you know football, took a, a couple of the ground school courses, um, but I didn't actually start any of the flying courses until spring. And what kind of plane is this in? So... You know, because of, uh, you know, the size, you know, being a, you're, you're a bigger dude, you know, obviously. Um, so I couldn't, the, the standard trainer is a 172, a little two seat high wing trainer. Um, unfortunately, because I was playing offensive line at the time, I couldn't fit in the plane with an instructor. We were overweight. So I had to pay the extra money uh, and actually go in a 172, which is a four person, a little bit bigger plane, uh, a little bit better payload. So I had to do all my training in a 172. Uh, just based on the sheer weight. And when you say 172, is that universal code for something that I it should is. know? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say universal code, but anybody that's ever done any flying, if you say a Cessna 152 or a Cessna 172, those are basically the most pro- some of the most proliferated aircraft in the in the world. Everybody who's been a pilot has probably got some sort of time in one of those. And two what aircraft. kind of aircraft is this? It's not a jet. No, it's, it's a, just it's a, a twin a, engine. Nope, single engine. Single engine. Yeah, just a single engine, uh, four cylinder. I think uh, a 172 has about 160, 165 horsepower. You know, it's just a, it's a four person little car. I mean, it's you know by today, you know by most people's standards, you hop in it and it's shutters a little bit more than your vehicle. You know, it's a, they're they're almost go karts, but they're you know they're great planes. They're well produced or they they were mass produced by the Cessna company. And they're a, just a phenomenal utility aircraft. You know, they're they're simple, um, uh, but they but they're reliable, and uh, that's why a lot of the schools use them because you know you can you can abuse those planes, which student pilots do. Nobody you know comes out uh, you know comes out of the womb knowing how to do this stuff. So you're going to have some hard landings. You're going to have 
you know, some things that you wouldn't normally do when you're, when you become more experienced, but these things just uh, take the punishment and keep going. So second semester, your instructor says it's time to go up in the air. The first thing that, the first thing that everybody in that position, they've already done the, the, the mechanics of the plane, the construction Mm -hmm. of the plane, the walk arounds, the safety part of it. Is it something to where it's ever crosses your mind of how important that stuff is to now, you know, now at this point in your career, or is it just second nature now that you can look, you can do a walk around on your plane. And I don't even know if pilots do that. We'll get into that when you're at your level now. But at that point, when you're a 20 year old kid, are you like literally like microscoping every single part of that plane before, you know, you're getting ready to leave the ground in it? You know, I think like anything else, like you do anytime you do something new and something that's, uh, carries a little bit of inherent risk to it. You're going to be, um, you're going to be nervous. You're going to be, you're not sure what's important. Like you're saying, you're studying every rivet and the more you go on, you, you understand the, the bigger systems. But yeah, the first time, yeah, you're looking at every single thing. Um, you're trying to do, uh, like anybody else, you're trying to do, um, the best job you can. You've studied, you have your instructors that are walking around, they're asking you questions as you do it. So it's kind of, and you know, you're not going to get everything right the first time, obviously, but you know, every time you go up, every time you, you do that new experience, you're going to, you, you know, your, your bag of tricks, you have, you know, you get one more trick in your bag and, and you uh, continually fill your, um, you, you know, your expertise level, you know, that, that can only be done through experience. Um, so the first time I, you know, I'm trying to remember, I, I do remember, um, you know, not so much the pre-flight. I, d- I do remember firing up, uh, pushing the engine up to full power. And, and when we first lifted off, you know, I, I remember it, thinking that it was taking longer than it should, but obviously you, you, you just don't know at that point, you know, you don't have any, um, uh, any real, uh, expectations or, you know, you've never done this before. Um, but it's, uh, it, it was awesome. You know, I was hooked. I mean, it's the, you were hooked. Like this was like, this made you feel like where, where you need to be more so than football did more so than the beaches of California did yeah. in that cockpit, in that plane, thinking back to those days, watching that small airport where your grandpa flew in and out of and watching yeah. all those different aircrafts take off and land. You're like, this is exactly what I was born to do. Yeah. So it was one of those things where, you know, and it, 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 it flowed, it made sense. And, you know, I loved doing it, you know, and it's, it's just like, yeah, it, it was one of those things like, you know, I, I was living in my mind at that time. I was living the dream, man. I was playing football with the dudes. I just can't think of a more all American male than a, a, a pilot, a future fighter pilot, a future commercial pilot, a college NCAA division one football player. I mean, walking around campus, you had to literally look like Tom Cruise on that ninja riding over to Kelly's house. Right. Right before the oh, song man. came on, you know, I, I mean, mean, did you feel like that ever, Brian? I mean, I know Rachel's probably going to listen to this. Yeah, she but. is, uh, and she will <laughs> emphatically deny that. Um, you know, I didn't uh, didn't have a leather jacket, and I didn't own a pair of Ray Bans. Couldn't afford those in college. You know how that worked. Uh, and uh, I think uh, the only motorcycle I've been able to afford at that time would be some sort of broke up uh, Vespa. Vespa, but, uh, little you know, moped. I just had my little Nissan truck, and you know, was doing. Uh, but you still got to ha- be on top of the world. I mean, you're flying, you're yeah. playing on a Saturday, and then yeah. you're flying on a Monday. Yeah. I mean, that's unheard of. I've it, never even heard of it. It was cool. It was, it was super cool, you know, and, and also, you know, go in, into the genesis of everything. You're in, you know, the Wright brothers birthplace of aviation the, you know, they, uh, they started everything as bicycle guys in a little shop in Dayton, Ohio, you know, and so you're, you're right there, you know, um, you know, this, the, the whole state and the whole area, the Midwest just bo- it breathes aviation. There's runways everywhere. There's dirt runways everywhere. There's grass runways. I mean, it is, it was a cool place to be, you know, and it was completely, um, 
different from where I grew up. You know, I mean, everything was green. Everything was spread out. There was these, you know, the, it was, it was just a different, different thing. I, I mean, as to embarrass myself a little bit, you know, when I went on the first recruiting visit in the Midwest, I'm looking around, I'm like, look at all these wild trees that just grow without being in a pot or being, you know, everything is manicured and this, that, and the other. I'm like, oh, there's just trees everywhere. This is awesome. You yeah, because we don't have a lot of it. Yeah, everything's manicured. Everything is, uh, you know, kind of put in its proper place. You know, you don't see that uh, that type of stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, so that was uh, the first time that, you know, saw that kind of trip me out a little bit. So take me through the, the, your, the rest of your junior year and your senior year. And, and where you were and what you were, what made you think, okay, it's time to go to the next level of aerospace degree. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that graduation and that degree. And then the next step in your career, I assume without pre, you know, pre jumping ahead too far yeah. is the military. Uh, not necessarily. Okay, no. Let me hear it. So, um, yeah. So obviously you got done playing football, enjoyed that. Uh, thankfully, you know, with most scholarships, you have five years. So it, I, I needed all uh, the extra, you know, three years to get through the degree program. Um, you know, played football, you know, did as well as I could, you know, got a couple of uh, school awards and things of that nature. And then, uh, my two roommates, they both were able to go to the next level. That was, uh, no, not my case. And I was just very grateful for the opportunities that pers- uh, that it provided. Um, so at the so time, they went to the NFL, they both did. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. I just um, want to make sure I wasn't yeah, thinking. Yeah. Sorry. They both went to the NFL. One had a three year career. The other one had a nine year career. So I, I, obviously I lived vicariously through them. I'm like, oh, okay, well you guys go play football. I'll uh, just go fight planes, I guess for a living. Which you is know? cool too. It, it, it is. Uh, cool. Now it is. But, uh, you know, at the time you're like, ah. man, I wish I was playing in the NFL. Exactly. But, uh, but no. So, um, and at the time I was graduating, I was still a, uh, uh, flight instructor. So I actually flight instructed for the university for about a year while I was finishing up the other coursework. Um, when I graduated, awesome, you know, uh, you know, uh, like everybody that graduates in high school, college, you know, sense of accomplishment there. And it's one of those things where like, Hey, you know, I, you bust your butt, um, for a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of sacrifices, a lot of everything. And you're like, okay, cool. This is a payoff now. Now what? And, uh, I'd already, I'm pretty proactive with what I did. So I knew I was graduating. So about three months prior, and I knew I was going to go um, back to Southern California, obviously, where my family and all that stuff was. So I, uh, I started going up to uh, so, uh, several of the flight schools out of Long Beach, John Wayne Airport, um, and even Fullerton, and, and putting my uh, applications out there. So actually, I, I got hired by a flight school in Southern Cal- or out of John Wayne Airport. It was called Sunrise Aviation. So it was actually a flight school and an aerobatics training center. So they uh, did all kinds of stuff. So they uh, they have a guy who's you know anybody in the aviation world. Michael Church is one of the um, he he's a very well renowned, well respected flight instructor. He's been doing it forever, and he's uh, had a lot of his students and and uh, even his teams compete in aerobatics competitions and things of that nature. He's there when you get there. Yep, he's still and there. aerobatics means flipping and turning and yep. doing the stuff uh-huh. that you see with the Blue Angels and. All the air, uh, all the Red Bull Air Race the team, you know, all, all those guys. So know. this is one of the top instructor instructor schools for that. Yeah, absolutely, and they do reg- all all the instruction. You know, uh, anything from you know your private pilots all the way up to your professional ratings. So they're doing pretty much everything there. So I had a job uh, going through there and, and and coming back to you know opening doors. It, it's it was funny because the the uh, Michael's um, uh, partner was Lynn Carlson. Well of all places, she was actually an alumnus of Kent State University. So, and she went through the program there. So she knew about the program, knew, you know, the rigors of it and basically hired me on the spot. So when I graduated, um, I went straight into, you know, went straight to work for them. So, uh, ended up working, 
you know, for those guys for a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, this is about the time had one, I don't know if you want to go into it, but had one, you know, my, or had one, uh, uh, fairly significant incident happen about six months when I was flying with them, uh, coming out of John Wayne. So this, this incident occurs in a plane, Yeah. but you're an instructor now. So you're yeah. sitting in the passenger, you're sitting in the, the, on the right side, looking yeah. out of the cockpit yeah. and you might have Chad Belding come in there and say, Hey, I want to take flight classes to get my enough hours to get my private, yeah. private license. Exactly. In a, a, Real quick, I want I want to ask you this. In California, sure. I work with a lot of crop dusters. Sure. Is that, do you have to go to flight school to become a farming pilot? Absolutely. To, Everyone's okay, got to have their, so there's two ways mm-hmm. that works. Um, you have to, so private pilot's license is what most guys get. And that just means you could go out and fly and you could fly with passengers. Um, the big caveat to that, or the, you know, the big caveat is you can't fly for hire. So it's not a professional rating, i.e. So it's more of a, a recreational type flying. Um, now for any reason, if you want to fly for hire, i.e. getting paid to fly, now you have to have a commercial rating, which is an additional, so you have to go back, um, and, uh, you know, there's a different set of regulations that you have to be familiar and demonstrate proficiency in. And once you achieve that rating, then you could actually fly for hire. So a lot of those crop duster guys, I'm sure have their commercial. Uh, so even if they don't, even if they're not flying for hire to take a per se passenger on a flight mm-hmm. to take money yeah. and fly over your crops and spray them, mm-hmm. you're, you got to have a commercial because they're doing some pretty trick shit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're doing right above power lines and oh, tree yeah. lines. And I mean, it's to me, I'm going, wow. Like, that's, yeah, no, it's some, uh, and those are robust, uh, you know, those aero tractors and stuff. Those are like little tanks. Those are robust little planes, you know, big power. Uh, for that reason, they carry big loads with all the insecticide and stuff. And I, did, I didn't want to get off track. I was no, just no. thinking like all these crop dusters I know. I'm wondering if if Wade and all these guys, not your Wade, but another mm-hmm. Wade I know, is, you know, just going out and buying a plane and getting in it and doing their thing. But obviously that's, you know. Um, so you have an incident coming out of John Wayne Airport yeah. six months into this Six job. months in, out of college, um, taking a student. It's supposed to be his first solo flight. So basically what happens is on your first solo flight, you go up with an instructor you do three, you go around the pattern three times, three takeoffs, three landings. Then as the instructor, I jump out of the plane, I got a radio with me and I stand in, you know, and John Wayne had two runways. So I stand in between the runways with a pair of binoculars and, you know, this, this student does his first three landings completely solo, no one else in the plane, you know, kind of a do or die type thing. And, uh, so that's the, the typically how your first solo flight works. Um, so in this particular instance, we were, you know, doing our standard run up, stand, standard checks. And on the first takeoff, uh, the engine starts running. We, we had just departed and the engine starts running very rough, um, super rough, lost, uh, you know, about 700, 800 RPMs. And, and you could just tell rough running engine. So at the time, you know, I told the guy, I got onto John Wayne Tower, said I was going to circle, uh, just turn immediately back and land opposite direction on the big runway. Cause they have a small runway for general aviation and the bigger runways for the commercial, uh, flights anybody else anybody that's flown into john wayne and as i was trying to turn to that runway there was a commercial airliner on a takeoff so they said negative go around the pattern i'm like okay so i started rolling wings level and as as soon as i got the wings back level the propeller just stopped so the engine had seized so engine seized up um so hold on real quick i'm not interrupting i gotta make sure i have this right this is his flight. Yep. You're the instructor, but yep. at this time you've taken over the aircraft. Well, I'm, he's, he's flying. Well, as soon as the, sorry. Yeah. I should have said something. As soon as the engine started running rough, I told him, you know, we always have the communication thing. I'm like my aircraft. And then he has to reciprocate your aircraft. So we know we're on the same page. Okay. So now you're in the hot seat now. So I'm in out of the right seat. Yep. I'm like my aircraft and, um, yeah, uh, the propeller just stopped. 
So the engine had seized Holy up. Shit. So it's about six o'clock in Southern California, and anybody that's flown out of there, I'm staring at the 73 freeway at six o'clock as a you know parking lot. And if you look, because we're heading south on the uh, on the uh, uh, where the runways are facing, you know, you look out uh, to your left, and it's a bunch of high-rise buildings. To your right, some more buildings. Um, and it looked in front of me. Yeah, the 73. There's a parking lot, but there is a golf course on the other side of the car parking lot. The problem with it that I that I made the quick assessment was, hey, there's about a 20 foot embankment, you know, from the freeway to get to that golf course that I have to clear. And if for any reason we can't clear this, because in in, in training they always say if you lose your engine in the first 400 feet, you go straight ahead and you just find somewhere to land because you're unable to make a 180 degree turn and land on the runway you just took off of. So I'm looking at this and in, in my, you know, my assessment, I'm like, well, if I miss, if I make the wrong assessment here, we could ball up this plane on the 73 freeway during rush hour, which could hurt a lot of people. So I didn't take that chance. So I, I basically threw the plane into about a 70 degree bank, um, which was you know, just a hard bank turn, got on the rudder and originally tur or turned, started turning the original direction of, uh, towards that runway with the, uh, with the intent of, you know, just keeping the turn as tight as possible to, you know, to crash somewhere on the air for, on the airfield where they have fire rescue and, and stuff like that. Um, so turns, I saw the plane that it was a Southwest plane that was taken off. So we passed below them by about 150 feet. And as I kind of knife edging the plane towards the uh, runways and, and held the bank in for as long as I could and ended up, you know, when I couldn't handle it anymore, started rolling out, we ended up striking the right wing tip and the right main gear on the field. Um, ballooned up. Uh, I thought the, the right, right whole, half the right wing ripped off. Um, thought, no freaking way. Yeah. I'm like, well, I don't know if, uh, and, and we hit so hard. I didn't think we still had the right landing gear. So I tried to put the next one on the left gear, um, which we, we settled in the nose, uh, gear ended up collapsing. And it's funny how like you just have little frames, you know, that you sit there and how your, how your brain starts working. Well, once the nose gear collapsed, the plane actually stood up on its nose. And I remember looking up because uh, we had two fuel tanks, two 40-gallon, I think it's, uh, yeah, 40-gallon fuel tanks above our heads. I'm like, if this thing continues to go over, you know. You're on fire. Yeah, we're on fire, you know, getting strapped in. Thankfully, the plane settled back down. It did catch fire, but we were right side up. So we ended up, you know, probably several expletives saying, you know, get the hell out of here. And I, you know, student went out one side. I shut down everything, went out the other side. And we ended up resting on the main runway, going the opposite direction and, you know, fire rescue and all those guys came out. Um, oh my God. So, it so was, is this the end of this guy's plan to become a commercial, I mean, a private pilot? No, he actually kept going. He got his private pilot. I would have been like, oh, uh, no. Yeah, That's I, like going in the ring against Mike Tyson and getting throttled in the first seven seconds. You're not going to continue on with your boxing career. Yeah. You know, he, and uh, you continued on too. Yeah. So it was one of those things where you, you know, you sat there and because they don't pay fly instructors a lot. And I'm just remember sitting there. I'm like, God, I'm six months out of college. You know, I almost died. And I almost died making like eight bucks an hour. Oh my God, I got to reevaluate life. <laughs> you know? The so, only question I have is how long you had mentioned that air traffic control said, no way we got a commercial yeah. flight taken off. The Southwest jet takes off into the air. You clear mm -hmm. it by 150 feet directly mm -hmm. underneath it yeah. with the seven degree, 70 degree turn back mm -hmm. into the airfield. Yeah. Did they, I assume that T, that air traffic control came back and said, go ahead, go ahead. We're cleared. No, or did you just do it on your own? You do it on your own. So there's a, there's one principal regulation that, uh, that trumps everything else. A pilot in distress can deviate from any FAR regulations, which is federal aviation regulations to meet the extent of the emergency. And in my, 
I just it, had chills go through my yeah, mind. Yeah, and, and, and in crazy. my in my opinion, that's what we needed to do. So, you know, at the end of the day, we, uh, you know, we walked away from it. Um, he continued on. He was just doing it for fun as a hobby. And then I, you know, after a couple of days, you know, you settle everything out. And like, you know, and, 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 and it goes back to, you know, uh, great place to fly in Ohio. There's, you know, I had instructors that just would practice those um, drills all the time. They would just pull my engine randomly. And... You know, and they would take it and they're like, all right, what are you, you going to do? And then you what just... What do you mean pull your engine, turn it off? Well, they would just uh, pull it all the way to idle. So it's still developing a little thrust, but they would just pull the engine back to idle. And then you go into your, okay, engine failure procedures. And and then in, because it's uh, not as populated as a lot of the areas, you know, around here and it's not mountainous. Um, so we could take it all the way down to 50 feet, you know, and then all of a sudden, okay, you got your engine back, you throttle back up and you take off. So we buzz it, you know, and get lined up on a farmer's field or you know, a little, a small back country road or something like that. So, you know, these guys had, had it ingrained it in me to, so it was almost instantaneous. Like something happened, you didn't have the startle effect or you didn't say, Oh, woe was me. And you start, you just like, dude, this is what's going on. We need to react and you need to make a decision. Um, so I was very thankful in the training that I had, you know, going back to, to, um, such a good, uh, such a good aerospace program that allowed that to happen. So Did you I, call your instructor that day. Oh, you, you know, I called the, I called the program. I called Lynn and yeah, I, I talked to everybody and just, that was it. And I was just like, Hey man, thanks. When it comes <laughs> to, when it comes to, and what, what plane are you in at this time now? It was a one, uh, at the, at the time of the story. Yeah. Yeah. It was a Cessna 172. So the same one that you trained in because you yeah. were a lineman and yeah. you, you were overweight with, yeah. with the instructor. Yep. You guys met the weight requirements yeah. over it. They train you in 172 six months after you graduate, yeah. six months into this new job. Yeah. You're in a 172 and this happens yeah. with this type of aircraft with this type of lifestyle of mm -hmm. becoming a hobbyist. Yeah. I know a lot of guys that do it. Farmers do it to count their cattle, mm -hmm. um, all kinds of private pilots. Um, a lot of them have more hours than other ones, whatever. What are the top three, let's say things that would cause a, uh, an accident to go wrong? Is it mechanical? Is it, is it pilot air or is it weather? Are those the top three? Am I onto something there or is there more that goes into it? You know, I think those, you know, if you're going, you know, uh, just uh, shooting from the hip, those are probably the three main, you know, things, uh, mechanical, um, obviously, you know, cause they are like any, like your cars, cars break down, you know, anything mechanical, even if you maintain it, um, to the best of your ability there, you know, things happen. Um, and, uh, thankfully, you know, with, with a lot of airplanes, they're inspected and they're inspected and, uh, have to go through checks a lot more, um, than a car, but you know, things, things happen, you know, parts fail, uh, with, uh, with ours in particular, um, with my, in my case in particular, it was basically, it was an exhaust valve on the plane that eventually became that, that became stuck. And the, th uh, the engine actually ingested the exhaust valve. So which, which caused the engine seizure. Um, so, I mean, it, it's just one of those things, you know, normally in a car, if something like that happens, you pull over to the side, you don't necessarily have that. Um, but thankfully with a lot of these planes, you know, they fly, uh, they can fly very slow if you need them to. So it can help minimize, you know, with, with a good pilot, you know, could hopefully, I mean, if you, if you're going down, there's, there, there's one thing you can't defy gravity. So you're going to go somewhere. The only thing that's in the pilot's hands at that point is, okay, where am I going to uh, put this plane? Cause the plane's going somewhere you know, but, uh, I, I, it just like, if you're talking about the, the, the gravity part of it and the plane mm -hmm. is going down, yeah. your engine fails, mm -hmm. just the, what's, what do you have left? I know that you say that these planes can fly slow. These little Cessna, one, they can glide. You have a, you have a glide. So you're yeah. gliding. So yeah. you're looking for the safest place yeah. 
to land, which hopefully it's a farmer's field or a dirt road that there's no traffic on. Anything, you know, Anything. you're looking for something. And, and that was the one thing, you know, that I always said, um, you know, and a lot of those decisions you make before you even get the plane. It's like, look, if push comes to shove and something has to happen, um, I always said like, you know, I'm the one that assumed the risk by going in these planes. So if push came to shove, if it, it you know, if given the choice of me, you know, rolling into an orphanage or just nose diving into a parking lot, I'm like, I will nose dive it into the parking lot make sure I'm the only one that's hurt. So, um, just for that reason. And that's everyone, every pilot's got to make that decision for themselves. And largely you have to make it before you even step foot in the aircraft because you're not going to have a lot of time to, to get in some deep philosophical, philosophical conversation with yourself. So the day after this happens is when you start to fill out your your resume and your application for the military, I assume? Or no. I, so anyway, we'll fast forward. So um, I actually got hired by a regional airline. So I was one of those guys in little puddle jumpers. Um, it was a it was an outfit that's no longer in business, but it was um, it uh, uh, was flying out of uh, Denver. And Cheyenne was the company where uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming is where the company was based. But it was all mountain flying and little 20 seat um, jets, actually 19 seat jets. Uh, or, or twin turboprops. Um, so that would be like a King Air? Yeah, it was a big King Air. Big King Air. It was Air. a Beach 1900D. Beach 1900D. Um, so great plane, overpowered, loved it. But it was, uh, you know, it was a lot of young guys and gals that were in, you know, pilot training. And, you know, you're doing that because it's all about building your hours. You have to build not just hours, but also quality hours and and uh, in, in types of certain regulations. So I was actually in training um, when these... Uh, with training with this, uh, with this particular aircraft, um, when September 11th hit. So, so this is 2001. So now we're up to 2001. So you're saying that you and some other pilots, your age, mm -hmm. you keep saying the term training and getting hours, but you're hired to fly commercially around Cheyenne, Wyoming, which it's not the best place in the world to fly yeah. Denver, you know, the mountains, the, mm -hmm. the drafts, the, we'll get into all that, what causes yeah. turbulence and stuff, but so you're still training or you're a licensed I, pilot? So now? I got, no, I'm, I'm a licensed pilot, commercial pilot, whole nine yards. Um, at this point, um, you know, essentially, uh, you know, an airline hires you and then you have to go on training for that particular aircraft, you know, cause I don't, uh, so with your, um, when, when aircrafts are any aircraft that's turbojet powered or it's over 12,500 pounds, it requires a, a specific type rating which means you get a license to fly that particular aircraft. Like, let's say, you know, the best way to say is like you buy a Mustang, you know, they don't do it with your driver's license, but maybe they should. Like you buy a Mustang, you don't need to have, your, your normal driver's license will cover for a Mustang. Now, somehow you get in a Lamborghini, two completely different performance uh, uh, characteristics and, or, or similar, but let's say you hop in a Lamborghini, you don't have to get a new license or anything like that. With, with an airplane, you would. So you have That's a good point. You go up in a Lamborghini from an escort. You should have to have it just like if yeah. you're going to drive a class C or your, or your commercial. You yeah. Know. So they do some of that for that. But I mean, when it comes to sports vehicles and stuff that's, like that, that's a good point. Yeah. So that, that would be the, probably the most eloquent way I could, I can make that. So this King Air is 19 passengers that are paying Yeah, 19, including you and the co-pilot or is there a co-pilot on this? No, there's a uh, two. So me and the co-pilot and then, um, 17, yeah, 19, 19, 19 passengers. Yeah. So it, there's two people that have to mentally say I'm ready to take somebody's money and the responsibility of them putting that seatbelt on and taking off and flying across the mountains of Wyoming and Denver, Colorado yeah. landing. It's you and your instructor. So is that something to where you were ready for that to know that now you're not just, you know, flying at 5,000 feet above John Wayne airport. You're going to be, you're going to be actually flying a little bit higher than that with a bunch of strangers on there. Sure. I think, uh, you know, honestly, I think it's, uh, honestly, I wish I would have 
never really got that deep into it. It was just kind of the next step. Like, you, you know, you're like, I, you feel confident in what you're doing. So at one point you feel confident, like, Hey, instructing all over, you know, with general aviation felt very confident and, and, uh, um, capable of doing that. So now it's like, like anything else, you want the next step. You want to, you know, you want to go, okay, you know, I, I meet the criteria to go do this. Um, and so you fill out the application and, and you go, you could do your interview process and, and that's what you, uh, that's what you end up doing, you know? And I, I guess I never really, cause everything is all about procedures and you're so embattled in the, the day to day and the procedures and, and, and all the stuff, you know, the emergencies and all that other stuff that could happen. I don't think you, I really had time or maybe just too dense to sit back there oh, and just kind of, yeah. and just sit back there and just kind of like, you know, really take it all in. But, I think. But did you, when the doors closed on that first flight? You know, so that's the funny thing is I, I was still in training. So I wasn't getting ready for simulators because you, you go through your ground school and then you go through simulators. And then once you get your simulators, then you actually what they call it, flying the line. You're actually on the revenue uh, flight service. Um, and we were a United Express carrier, which was pretty funny. So hearing stories from guys, it's like, you know, you see it a lot. Probably 95 percent of the passengers were drunk out of their minds because, you know, they buy United ticket and they're like, oh, hey, this is great. I didn't know they flew into, you know, Cow's Nut, uh, uh, Wyoming, but great. United <laughs> flies in there. Well, until you get to Denver and then they look down and they see a little turboprop spooling <laughs> up. The first thing these guys do is turn around and go to the bar. Oh, dude, they beeline to the bar and line up about six to nine shots. And, uh, you know, I could say self-medicate if you self -medicate. will. <laughs> so, um, but there, you know, it was, it was fun cause it was like, you know, group of guys. So, and gals that we had in our class, but we're all, you know, r roughly around the same age out of various, you know, aviation programs and colleges and local schools. So th that part was pretty fun. Um, just being for the limited time I was there. So, um, you know, when September 11th hit, we got, I got furloughed, which is basically, you know, let go. And, uh, the next day my brother joins the Marines. So real quick before we go yeah. this step. Yeah. You're get. You said you get. What did you mean by you're getting ready for sim, stimula, simulators? You're not flying then. Uh, well, you know, so the simulators they have are all full motion. Full motion. Right. So I'm still in training. So I'm still in ground school waiting. Bef so you never got up in the air with 19 passengers, and N and then 9/11 hits. Yep. Your brother joins the Marines. Yep. All right. So he joins the Marines, and um, you know, right off the bat, so I look at that, and 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 you know, the funny thing is, I'm like, well. Who knows what's going to happen here? Um, a lot of the guys I hung out in college were actually the ROTC guys, and that's the Reserve Officer Training Corps. So basically, you know, kids that are going to college, um, getting help with their school and, and, and stuff like that, all the way up to full scholarships, but they have to incur a military commitment after college. A lot of those guys in the program, one, uh, there was two Air Force guys that were my instructor. There was a Marine guy I hung out with. Th those were the guys I piled around with in the aviation program in college, and I always thought they were great dudes. You know, we had a great time. So my brother joined the military uh, as just a enlisted Marine. And I'm like, well, you know what? That might be my next move. It was always something I was kind of, I, I was kind of curious about. Um, and, you know, at, at the time I was like, well, don't have a job right now. You know, uh, might as well see what, you know, what the military can do. So I ended up, uh, and it's a, a distinctly longer process than going in enlisted. So it took about, I went in started testing out, started filling the paperwork, doing all the medical exams. So I ended up, um, it took about just over a year to be able to in process to the military. So um, which branch are we talking? Air force. And your brother's a Marine. Yeah. And his mindset is I'm going to go he, defend he, what just happened. Yeah. 
Is that your mindset too, or is this just a continuation? That was of your that was a lot of it. Was, that was is that you know, hey, you got to back your brother up type thing. You know, he's my younger brother, so you got to back your brother up in, in the best way I know how to do it, which was, hey, you know, I'll be the air support for him. Isn't it weird mindset? Isn't it a weird mindset that you could sit here at five feet across this table from me and tell me that when those planes flew into the towers in New York, that the first thing you and your blood and your kin and your brother say is. F that I'm going in. And then guys like me never even, it never even crossed my mind. Isn't that weird? Like to, I, 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 I get to hunt with so many soldiers and veterans and special forces and people that I'm just like, wow, it never crossed my mind to serve. It never crossed my mind to enter and do what you and your brother did when they did what they did to our country on September 11, 2001. It never crossed my mind ever. Isn't that weird that you can look at another male that is is supposed to be a, a manly man, that's supposed to be this provider, that's supposed to be a true-blooded American? It never crossed my mind, Brian. Is that normal or is that almost like, what a pansy? Or is it, hey, to each their own and not everybody's wired like that? Yeah. That's a lot of what I get when I sit down with veterans and, and active duty members of our armed forces and the different branches is they tell me, look, this is what I was put on earth to do. You're doing what you were put on earth to do. Yeah. You give back to the soldiers in a lot of different ways. Yeah. But I'm sitting here going, when I woke up and I saw that going on in our country in New York that day, it never crossed my mind to do what you and your brother did. That makes me feel like, like the most inadequate that you could ever feel as a person, knowing that at that instance, people are like, boom, I'm entering. I'm, my name is Brian Moore. I'm ready to go over there. That's just a weird feeling to me. It's just, it's different to hear that, that you guys, you're doing what you do today because of what happened at nine 11, pretty much. Yeah. And it, your brother's I mean, where he's at in life. Sorry to interrupt you. No, Go ahead. No, not at all. Uh, and, but that was it, you know, it, it, and I guess it's, it's that type of thing. They, uh, you know, um, the look before or the leap before you look, and that was basically it. You know, we, we went in there and I put in a package and thankfully it was able to, uh, got accepted as a, you know, for a pilot slot in the air force. Um, so yeah, I did, uh, ended up doing that, uh, you know, scored well enough in officer school that I was able to go to a NATO training program, uh, that was out of uh, Wichita Falls, Texas. So went there once again, met, uh, met one of my, it's funny how life is, you know, in these relationships, but so the ROTC guy that I hung out with. Yeah. Oh yeah. At Kent State, who was the ROTC Air Force guy, he was actually one of the instructors. He's so an instructor we, now. Yeah. He was an instructor now. I'm a new guy coming out. So he was, you know, three, four years, he was about three years ahead of me. Um, and so once again, you know, got to, got to see him again and hang out and have a couple barley pops, obviously. And, uh, so I love all your different names for beer. <laughs> are you, are you saying after I just told you about how I felt inadequate, yeah. are you doing this to become a trainer and an instructor in the military? Or do you have the mindset that I'm going over. I'm going over. That's, you that was know. mindset. Yeah. That was your mindset. Well, that's, you know, that's what you go in with, you know, like, Hey, if I'm going to join the military and this is going on right now, you know, country's in a fight and that really, and the funny thing is that really, um, uh, drove my aircraft of choice. Cause when you go through school and depending on your grades and stuff like that, you make your wish list of what plane you want. And I, and I, obviously if I was going to do this, I, I wanted to go fighters and that was just kind of my mentality at the time. And if, you know, if I was able to do that, that was, that was what I was shooting for. But there was, um, certain fighters that were going there all the time, going over Iraq, you know, the F, uh, the F-16s, the F-15E, the Strike Eagles, the A-10s. I'm like, so those were basically my, my choices. F-16 was my first choice. Uh, Strike Eagle was second, A-10, you know, was my third. And they were all like equal. You know, as far as like, if I got one of those three planes, man, I am 
beyond excited. You know, obviously they didn't have, you know, the F-22s, F-35s were just, you know, a twinkle on probably some uh, some eggheads drawing board over at uh, Skunk Works or something like that. In layman's terms, are these three jets that you just named mm -hmm. the ones that we would see in Top Gun or the Blue Angels or the Canadian Snowbird, or is it the Thunderbirds or the Snowbirds? The, or so the F-16 is the one flown by the Thunderbirds. Okay, the um, F-16 is. Yeah, so that's what these jets are looking like. These are the yeah. the badass Mach 2 or break the sound barrier yeah, kind of stuff. Th those are the, you know, they, they call them, um, uh, was it, uh, multi-role. So, i.e., they are just as adequate doing air-to-air -air as they are air-to-ground. And they, because of, you know, their sensors and, and their ability um, to carry certain weapons and everything like that, they, they will be able to do both. So explain that to me real quick in layman's terms, air to air and ground to ground, air to air, air, to, ground. air, to, air, to, air to air, like plane, airplane versus airplane. Okay. Or versus airplane versus tanks, airplane versus troops. So this is all military combat phase right, yeah. we were talking about. Yeah. So, um, wow. Yeah. So this is your goal was one of these three planes. Name them again. Uh, F-16 was my number one choice. F-15E, which is a strike eagle. It, it, it looks very much like an F-15C. Um, which is the, you know, uh, the, the twin tail, twin engine, uh, uh, big Air Force fighter plane. But this one was um, basically um, re-engineered with the emphasis on um, uh, uh, air interdiction and strike, deep air interdiction and, uh, you know, surface attack strike missions. But it is a multi-role. It does have a, a considerable air-to-air -air capabilities. And then there is, you know, the, the mighty, mighty A-10 Warthog, just with its big Gowate, um, 30 millimeter gun, the anti, the tank killer of Iraq, you know, that, that the plane, it's, it's not fast, but man, it carries a lot of air to ground stuff and it's always up close and personal with the troops. And I, I want to say my brother, that's his, uh, that's his, by far his favorite aircraft, uh, that the air force flies is that a 10, but those were my three, those were my top three. It's choices. amazing seeing like your face and the jubilation when you yeah. start talking about those three planes, oh, man, they're, they're sexy. So you're, you're, a year it takes a year to get into the program and then take it from there again so a year just to get to get sworn in to go to officer school you know with all the tests so after that you um you essentially uh after officer school then you know you figure out where you're going to pilot training i was uh based on age i was a little bit older at this time because i did some civilian work obviously at, right out of college and didn't go right in um so just based on my timing i went pretty much from from my uh commissioning uh class right into the, the pilot training. So uh, there was about a two week gap, which was, which is actually fast. Um, so from there you go into pilot training and, and generally pilot training starts off with the, you know, your primary trainer, you do that for six months and to, based on your grades, everything you're taking tests, you're doing flights, everything that you're doing is graded. So then they rack and stack you, i.e., you know, they number, Hey, number one to number 30, as far as, uh, um, number one and to number 30, as far as this is where this person ranks. After you do that, based on your scores, then you'll get to go to the, the T-38 if you're going to go a fighter bomber track. Um, T-38 is uh, kind of the plane. It's very similar to the plane that they used in uh, Top Gun as the MiGs, you know, that uh, the little MiG-28. So it's a supersonic trainer, um, great airplane. has been around for a long time, but it's a, it's a phenomenal airplane. So you do that for six months. Once again, you're re-racked and stacked. Everything's graded. And then at the end of that process, then you um, find out what plane you're going to go to. So you, when you say racked and stacked, this is, is that a term that your instructors are like, they're watching you obviously with a microscope mm -hmm. and everything that you're doing is put up on the rack and it's stacked on top of each other of your qualifications that are adding up? Or just is that each individual person. Each individual so person. So you're, you know, basically because you're taking tests, you know, about, you know, several times a week. 
Um, you're, they're rating everything from your flying ability, leadership skills, you know, just your tangibles, intangibles, and then all that is being correlated with your, um, you know, your academic scores. So how are you performing at this time coming from Cheyenne in this 19 seat puddle jumper? Yeah. Is that considered a puddle jumper? Is that a bad term to use? I don't don't know. Okay. So this little 19 seat double propeller King air, and now you're getting ready to, you know, training for what your goal is. Mm -hmm. Are you performing up to your standards? Are your instructors letting anything out of the bag that you're, that you are a leader that you're exactly what they're looking for? You know, I think cause you, you know, that's the one thing that uh, always uh, perennially blew me away. It was just you, you just the quality of, people that you see you know a lot of you know kids from academies kids from ROTC college collegiate programs but everyone largely cut um, out of the same cloth you know um, everyone's very hardworking. everyone's very you know and it, it's tough when you're put into that microscope with that kind of stress and everything like that so I think uh, all the instructors held everything close to the chest you know a little bit not to discourage anybody because they you know you go to a spot where you see everybody's just this is you know like this is a life calling for a lot of people so everyone's doing everything and not everybody gets to make it through not every you know sometimes it, it is heartbreaking because sometimes just physiologically they can't handle you know one of the biggest uh washout periods because they do a pretty a really good job screening you before they even get you into pilot training because it is a considerable fiscal investment you know for uh you know for the government you know and 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 at the end of the day, I always tell people, it's like, look, you could train a monkey to do anything, you know, but at the end of the day, what happens with, you know, especially with pilot training programs, it's like, look, you have to understand or you have to get this concepts very quickly because, you know, the government needs a return on investment. You know, they can't spend hundreds of millions of dollars on each person, you know, so they, you know, only guys that, that, that get it quickly get to continue, guys and gals that get it quickly can, can continue on because they can't just continue to waste uh, training dollars on somebody that's taking too long. So what did you have in your psyche that made you the material they're looking for? Give me some attributes of a person. Are, are you clever? Are you witty? Are you quick minded? Are you just book smart? Are you social smart? Are you like, what, what are they looking for when they're talking to you to let you go on to the next level with keeping in mind that, Hey, this is there, there has to be an, an ROI down the road here. Sure. No, absolutely. And I, I, you know, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a culmination. It's, you know, and a lot of your instructors have been in the squadrons. So they, you know, they come back and, you know, they go do their operational squadrons and then they come back into the training environment. So they understand, you know, how the squadrons work, how the, you know, the camaraderie and all that other stuff. So I think, you know, they're, while everyone's fairly close, you know, um, there, there are folks that, you know, that, that will stand up, uh, stand out because, you know, some guys are more apt to take the leader, take on leadership roles and other guys than other guys are not saying that they wouldn't, if, if they needed to, you know, you're looking for guys that just bunch of alpha personality, hard charger type dudes. Um, and you know, I think a lot of it at that time, cause you're also a junior, you know, you're a junior officer. Um, I think really what was going on is can right now, can they a handle, handle the rigors of flying the aircraft? Can they handle the rigors of the, you know, constant testing and, and everything like that? As long as you could handle those and you you don't have any super deviant behavior, which you probably would have never made it to that point to begin <laughs> with. I, I could know, have saw that one coming yeah, from a mile away. As long as you don't have any super deviant behavior, you're going to get through. Because the main thing right now is they're looking, you know, for you your... You just said that to cover your ass with your wife. A little bit, a little <laughs> bit, you know. Um, but I'm sorry, go ahead. They're looking for what? 
for for just that. Can you fly? Can you handle the stresses? Because that's what the the biggest thing. Well, let's let's keep in mind though that the stresses of getting in one of these three jets that you talked are high enough. Yeah. Probably just the interview process is stressful. Then you got the simulators. You got everything that goes into it before you actually take that walk out onto that jet bridge. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and see that monstrosity of a the baddest ass machines ever built in the sure. world, probably. But then you got to keep in mind that if you do go over there, now you got, you're at a whole new new level of the weapons and the missions yeah. and the night flights and 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 that that to oh. me it's a, it, to me like there's probably a very minuscule amount segmentation of our population that could ever even fathom doing this like we all dream of it like i I've, i don't know how many years i've told you in a row now mm-hmm. i remember reading bo jackson's book back in the 90s or maybe the late back bo was you know popular in 87 through 95 or whatever yeah. he wrote that he got to go up in an f14 I've seen people in my industry get to do it. And I'm like, man, what a freaking, and I, I, I don't, there's even training to go up and just be a passenger in one of these deals, right. On how no, to breathe. And absolutely. so like that whole concept of adding the combat part of this, that that's where your mind is on a different level than a lot of people's because it's almost, I'm not saying that you're a genius or you're way smarter and I'm not saying that you're not, but that mindset is like, man, I'm not just going to be a pilot anymore. I'm going to go over and pull triggers and drop bombs and missiles and shit. That's, yeah, and, that, that, and that's the thing I think they really go out because, you know, the level of stress is, it, it doesn't go down, you know, because just like you said, so, hey, can you handle at this point? Okay, cool. Now that you can, you've graduated, you got your airplane, now we're going to put an even more capable airplane, more G-forces, more performance, more sensors, more things on you. Cool, now you got that. Awesome. Now you're going to do that in a combat environment, which is, i.e., you know, you have guys on the ground that are taking fire. You have... Um, procedural ROE, i.e. where you can drop in relations to, you know, schools, you know, civilians, collateral, uh, collateral damage assessments. Because, you know, let's keep this in mind. These are not, you know, we're, we're not dropping, you know, nerf balls on people, you know. So doing these things, especially in the urban environment, and it can get very emotional if you're not, uh, you know, extremely precise. And you sure. have, you know, the, the, they call it the fog of war, i.e., you know, trying to ascertain all the information that you're getting. But sometimes you're not getting everything. You know, hey, this guy is getting clipped or, you know, he's trying to read you something and all of a sudden, you know, a dude next to him gets hit or, you know, they're they're squeezing off bursts or whatever. And, and you, you're you there as, you know, the support asset for them. So you're trying to take all this stuff in, being that calming voice for these guys who are, you know, really taking, you know, uh, taking the shots, taking the grenades, taking, you know, the, I mean, these guys are in the thick of it. You know, you are. I say, yeah, we're in the thick of it a little bit, but I mean, at the end of the day, we're 12 to 14,000 feet, you know, we're two, two miles away, you know, might be overhead, but we're still two miles away from the action. Those guys were the ones that were, you know, taking all the, uh, um, you know, getting the stressors, taking all the, you know, the, the, the rounds. When you say those guys, you're talking about the army and the Marines, just the ground force, the ground force, guys. the ground force guys. Those are the dudes that were, you know, really, really in the thick of this. So is the air force not considered a combat arm of our, of our armed forces? No, and I don't want to downplay that at all, you know, but I don't uh, want to either. That's why I'm asking. No, no, but you are, we are 100%, you know, and they have, we have a lot of air force personnel that are embedded with the Marine, the Navy and the army units. And they're, uh, their job is because they specialize in their ability to to call in aircraft for um, an air to ground strike. So Navy is aircraft and water mm-hmm. because that's where the seals are. Mm-hmm. And then there's fighter pilots in the in the Navy as yep. well, and in the Army there's fighter pilots or no? No, Army's so, all ground force no, and helicopters. Aren't yes. So a um, little you know a little bit of a segue. So when the Air Force didn't exist till 1947. Um, and after 1947, because in all World War II, that was the Army Air Corps. 
you know, that had all the bombers, the planes. Well, when they decided to swap these uh, or to separate the forces because they were getting, you know, quite robust, um, the uh, in 1947 they split. So the the navy or the army became the army, air force became the air force. Now with them splitting, what they um, decided to do is they had to restrict the amount of assets that they had because it, it, you didn't want to waste money with two competing forces. Um, so one of them would be uh, the air force was limited to mostly fixed wing assets, i.e. airplanes, and the army was relegated to rotary wing assets, i.e. helicopters. Now, the Army does have a small uh, group of fixed-wing assets, but once again, they are, um, they are limited in what they could have. Vice versa, the Air Force. They do have helicopters in the Air Force, but it's a small number, and you can't go beyond a pre-negotiated number, obviously. I, I don't know those exact numbers or whatever, but it was you know the intent of that regulation was to keep, hey, we split these guys up for a reason. Let's not now make them compete against one another. Makes total sense. Yeah. So those assets were protected back when that split occurred in the forties mm -hmm. yeah. of like, Hey, the air force is going to be named the air force for a reason. Yeah. The assets that are, or, that are going to fulfill their needs are there. And then our ground force are going to have the tanks and, and the trucks and the Hummers and all the stuff that yeah. we need over here. Exactly. And now you, and you know, now the biggest thing is like interoperability, you know, so with, you know, uh, informational management and the way that we have to be able to, um, disseminate information. That's where the real key in these these latter wars is the amount of information that's being provided to ground commanders via aircraft overhead. You know, you're looking at drones and you're looking at the even the manned fighters overhead can pass a huge amount of information to not only the ground forces but also other aerial assets to, you know, gain what we call always call situational awareness. You know, situational awareness is dude all the information on what's going on in a particular area. And no matter where you're pulling it, as long as you, you know, it's not about who gets the information. It's about someone getting the information and then providing it to as many people um, that need to know it in that particular area. Is it safe to say that all four arms, the Army, the Marines, the Navy, and the Air Force, will all be working together? Are they all aware of what's going on? Are the commanders-in-chief and the lieutenants and the admirals, are they all communicating between the branches during theater? When you guys are in theater, are there is there a big communication process that knows what each arm is doing? So, I mean, by no means is anything uh, perfect. You know, I think we are the most communicative uh, that we've had been in past, and we're rapidly moving to get to that ways. I mean, there's been several historical examples of when they had inter-service cooperation that failed miserably because, you know, armies the army used one type of radio versus the Marines used another. And they couldn't actually, they weren't channelized to talk to each other. So there has been lots of, um, you know, and like most things, you, you, um, you learn via, um, through mistakes, you know. Uh, and so especially nowadays, you know, when, you know, where, where there is a finite amount of money that you have to spend on the military and you want to maximize um, every dollar that is spent, especially the taxpayers' dollars and, you know, your defense dollars. Um, but also just makes now if you have these units, because there's so many specialized types of things that could happen. So the more you have these units work to work together, now you kind of get the lingos. You get um, a lot more um, exchanges. Jar jargon. It's yeah, jargon. the jargon, the language. You the speak language. the language, yeah. you know. But also now you have radios that are built to talk to one another. Now you actually use, you know, like, you know, the, the SEALs will go to Army courses, will go to Air Force courses. Like, you know, same thing with the Air Force guys, you know, or what we call them our JTACs and our, our pararescue men, um, they will all go to the same schools. 
So you get to meet these guys, you know, the jargon, you know, you know, you know what to expect. And, and, and the biggest thing is a lot of the procedures have been standardized to, um, to allow, uh, you know, to, uh, I would say, um, to minimize, or I wouldn't say minimize, but to, um, to allow people to know what to expect from a certain unit that's coming in there at a, at a, at a certain time. Before, I, before you explain to me what G force is mm-hmm. in layman's terms, where are we at age wise now? You, you left oh. Wyoming with when you were how old and now you're, you're studying for, to get in one of these three dream jets. Yeah. Are you 21, 22 or no, no, no. So, you know, typically guys will start, if it came out of the Academy, they'll be about 22 or 23 when they start pilot training. I was actually 26. So I started a little bit later. Um, so by the time I went, made it through pilot training, got, got the F 16 and then now started, um, uh, started what we call the RTU, which is your remote training unit. Uh, started uh, a- actually F sixteen school at twenty seven, so I was twenty seven at this point. And Work. what's normal for F sixteen school? Twenty five. Uh, most of the guys are about twenty four, twenty five. And where does this take place? Is that can you say where this is? No, absolutely. It was uh, so one of the schoolhouses that we had. I went to Luke Air Force Base out of Phoenix. Luke Air Force. So Base. it was on the you know the northwest uh, corner uh, of Phoenix where they had you know a bunch of uh, fighter squadron units, and that was. Um, you know, where we did all of our, it's about a, it was a 10 month course. So you go to simulators, uh, some Sims mostly flying. Okay. So So. that's what I want to know is now thinking back to the days of SoCal watching these little aircrafts come in and out of here. Now you're walking out to the F-16. Yeah. It was on your list. It was on your final three list. Yep. This has got to be like the greatest thing that's ever happened in your life besides the birth of your kids with Rachel, yeah. but it's got to be up there. Oh yeah, dude. It's, it's maybe uh, besides meeting Wade, let's, let's make sure oh, that Wade's on there. there. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but tell me about like when, when I walk into a major league baseball field to this sure. day, I know that I wasn't good enough, but when, you know, when you take that first step from the tunnel into like where you can see the view of the field, yeah. I'm just like, man. This is awesome. It, no, it is. How are you? How are you feeling when you walk up to you it? You know, it's uh, actually <laughs> strangely enough claustrophobic. So because that cockpit's so it's little. pretty small. Like yeah, I remember motoring the canopy down and it hit my shoulders. So I was like, oh. Did they tell you this when you're go- when you get in there? Like hey, like you might not be built for this. Did they ever say this? Well, because you do the you know the you, know, you go through seating heights and you go. Through I don't the want the audience out there to think that we're talking to some three hundred pound. You're not big. I'm just saying like yeah. you're not like if you were going to try to be a bull rider, you yeah. would never make it. Yeah, you're built like I am. You're you know you're a little bit more of a badass, rugged man, right, Bry? Yeah. <laughs> well, and and that was it. it. You know, just it was one of those things. So it's uh, you know, I close the can or try to close the canopy and it hit my shoulders. I'm like, oh crap, I. Maybe should have said. But what it. about when you're walking up to it? Are you freaking oh, yeah. going like, "Oh my God, I'm here"? Well, yeah, and that's that is uh, surreal. You're like, dude, they're they're actually going to throw me the keys of this thing and just, you know, obviously you're going out with an instructor, you know, who's you know who's sits watching behind you. you. Uh, he is sitting behind you, but honestly, that the dude fades away. You're just looking at the plane. You're just looking at dude. I, I dude, I can picture thing. you putting the helmet on, the yeah. hose coming out of the the oxygen hose yeah. coming out. I mean, I'm just picturing how the movies paint a, a kind of a picture of this. And yeah. we've talked about top gun, the way top gun makes you feel as an American was awesome. Sure. Yeah. So this has got to be like just an unbelievable jubilation going on inside of your soul. Well, it is. And I think, you know, a lot of it is tempered with the fact, you know, cause that was one of the things you're so worried about your procedures. You're so worried about getting everything right. And you're so worried about knocking everything, um, you know, not screwing up, you know what I mean? And that was one of the few times when I can't, you know, so I'm doing all the procedures, all of a sudden the canopy goes down, hits my shoulder. I'm like, ah, motor the canopy up and I twisted, you know, did a 90 degree twist and motor the canopy down. I'm like, okay, that, that works. 
uh, and then you get back into your flow. So it, it's funny because it's it's so much a blur because, like you said, these planes are ex- they're expensive to fly, you know, and you want to you want to do as best as quickly as possible. So you're going up, and you know the guy in the back's constantly um, talking to you. And I, I do remember at the end, we ran through our profile to make sure that we got everything that we needed to do on the ride. And we still had a little uh, bit of time left. And the instructor's like, all right, man, you got the jet, do whatever you want. And yeah. that, and that was a time just like, okay, you know, you got, you I know, can't five imagine minutes. Yeah, I'm so minutes. envious of that. Like what, what is the difference in layman's terms of this cockpit compared to being in Cheyenne, Wyoming? Is it like, is this just like the mastermind of aircrafts to where you're just overwhelmed or is it like, man, my training has got me here. I know where every button is and I know exactly what I need to push or flick. Oh, well, 100%. And, you know, and it's, you know, and it's, it's difficult to make that comparison because, you know, it's, it's like comparing a, you know, it's like comparing an SUV to an Indy car, you know, it would be the best. Like you get in your SUV and you look at, you got gauges, you got knobs and dials and everything like that to do whatever you want, you know, hey, do you want your seat? vibrating, not vibrating, heated, cooled, whatever the case may be, you know, whereas you get into an Indy car and everything's compressed. Every button has like two or three different purposes because they don't have, you don't have enough room to put all these, all these creature comforts in there, you know, but at the same time, once you hit the accelerator, that's when all that stuff goes by the wayside. I really don't care that that, you know, my car can't make me a latte. I'm, uh, you know, I'm doing, you know, 250 miles an hour. So that's kind of the same uh, mentality is the fact that you get in this plane and they're, you know, initially fairly rudimentary when you look at them. There's not a lot of bells and whistles. But once again, then once you fire everything up, well, every display here has multi-modes. Also, I was way off, meaning that it doesn't look like a sound design board in a record studio. It's simplified. Yeah. Yeah. It's very simple. Well, initially, and then once you realize it, each button will do like three different things. You know, and because you have to, you know, space is at a premium, especially inside these cockpits. And, um, you know, the biggest thing, you know, the bigger thing also is that, um, you know, there's not a lot of room and, and they're purposefully built aircraft. You know, they're not about creature comforts. They are all about going to war. And, you know, uh, like we say, they're just going out to other people's places and breaking their stuff. That's what this thing is designed to do. Um, and so initially, like when you, you know, you could, I've, I've been in some, um, business jets, like, you know, Gulf streams and, and, and these other things, and they just have these phenomenally beautiful cockpits, you know, all these multifunction displays and all this, you know, cool, uh, cool, uh, cool Gucci stuff where a fighter jet's not that way. It's very purposely built. It's very, um, I would say there's some cool stuff that it, absolutely it does, but it's, it's, uh, it would be Spartan by, you know, luxury uh, uh, standards, if you will. But at that's, the end of- that's very interesting to know that yeah. it is like every button is so multifunctional that now to me, that's almost taking, like if it's all buttoned out like a regular cockpit, you know exactly what you need to push at any given time. Now right. it's taking the guesswork out of it to where you actually have to know like, oh my gosh, if I go this way with it, if I do this. Yeah. So now you got you got to keep that in mind that it's not yeah. as spelled out as that one would think. No, exactly. And especially with the, uh, the F-16. So the big concept they came out with with the 80, especially with the high G aircraft, was what they call uh, HOTAS, hands-on throttle and stick. Which means, you know, at 1G, you could easily, like when you're driving your car, you reach up and flip a switch and this and the other. Well, at 7, 8, 9Gs, can't do that. So your hands, you could pretty much do all the major functions of the aircraft 
with your hand with your hands on your the stick and the throttle. So you never have to take your hands off the stick and the throttle. So wow. everything is, you know, you move the switch a certain way and then you press it or then now we've gone to the point where it's okay, I want to press it forward. That does one thing. Now I do a long press forward. It does another thing. I go press, you know, every, every switch has got, you know, can actuate four directions, press down and it's a, a, you know, a short push or a long push, what they call. And, you know, when you look at the stick, the stick probably has seven or eight switches on it. The throttle has probably nine or 10. Um, one of the crew chiefs, the best way he put it was he's like, yeah, it's kind of like trying to play three PlayStations at the same time is essentially the, the best analogy that I, I ever found for how you describe, you know, and how you fly stuff. And, and that's basically what you do. You just get into, um, you know, uh, we call it par, ta par task training or just, you know, muscle memory, going through your different modes, going through your different things. And, and how many hours is this taken training to get this, this part of it down? Well, and the funny thing is, like, they give you the bare minimum. Uh, I wasn't smart enough to just do it in the bare minimum. So obviously you're spending a lot of your own time. You know, they have training devices that are cockpit mock-ups that have the different switches and they have computerized simulators that are strictly there just for that to get you to push the buttons and, um, and to work through your, you know, your avionics and, and get through the modes as rapidly and efficiently as possible. So now you pull this thing down, it hits you in the shoulders, you twist yeah. a little bit. You said they give me the keys to this. Is yeah. there a key? No, <laughs> no key. <laughs> okay, so tell, tell I, I got it. I got it. Where are you at? What? How long is the runway? How? What's the process here? You're actually going to take off and go mm -hmm. up and do some maneuvers with your with your instructor. Yeah. So this they, is the first flight. Yeah. So they just run you through. You know, obviously the runway. Most Air Force runways minimum ten thousand feet generally. Um, so I can't. You know. Uh, Someone's going to give me crap about this, but I can't remember the exact runway length at Luke. Uh, but it was, it was over 10,000 feet. So you take off most of their... Can I ask why? Is that for the landing? Just, you know, landing. I mean, airfields are, you know... Uh, What's a commercial jet? What's a 747 to take off? 5,000 feet? No. Typically, most airline, you know, most airport runways are about 10,000 feet. 10,000 oh, feet is like really? a generalized accepted, you know... Now, are there some shorter? Yeah, like John Wayne Airport has a 5,700-foot runway. Um, that's why you don't see 747s at John Wayne airport, but you, you know. see 737s. Yeah, they can take off on that. But, uh, you know, so the runway is, you know, um, is dependent on obviously the load of the aircraft. Now, once again, you know, the, the heavier aircraft, the longer you want the runway to be. And even with fighters, because now you start loading them up with bombs, guns. So it's the weight. Um, yeah. The weight, it, it's all generally on the, your takeoff roll. So generally how long does it take an F-16 to take off? Once with again, no wind or nothing? With no wind, depends on the weight. You know, the big thing is air-to-air. -air fully loaded. Fully loaded air-to-air -air or fully loaded air-to-ground. Those could be drastic. Air, okay, air-to-air. -air. You're going in so, the air flight. air-to-air, 1,800 feet. 1,800, 2,000 feet. And you have 10,000 to work with? Yeah. How long are the things that you take off when you're on the water? The 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 crew the ships the the oh the uh, so the Navy, yeah, from the Navy things, obviously, you know, one of the big... Um, things that makes our Navy so, uh, so effective is the fact that it could launch fully loaded airplanes. So the reason how it's able to do that is with the catapult system. Um, so once again, oh, yeah, so that catapult will accelerate, uh, and I can't remember quite how long it is, but it, you know, bottom line, it'll, it'll accelerate a, you know, a 40 to 50,000 pound jet from zero to 150 miles an hour in less than two seconds Amazing is, is a cat shot. Amazing. You know, and I'm sure there's somebody who's going to call me out on knowing the particulars, but I'm like, eh. Are they landing on that thing too? Absolutely. 
So, so it slows down that fast too? It, it does. Now they, the runway is a little bit longer. That's why they have the cable system. You know, you see the hooks that come yeah. down for Navy airplanes. It snags a cable and that slows them down. Um, otherwise it wouldn't be able the to timing's got to be impeccable. Yeah. You know, it's definitely, especially with that, you know, with the, the, the ship, moving the shaves move, the wave, uh, are moving. The ship's kind of moving a little bit, you know, that stuff is, uh, and I haven't, I've never done, haven't, uh, that's not part of my qualifications with the Navy now, but I haven't done a carrier landing. So would you want to, is that something that you think it. about? I think that would, did be I mean, strike a nerve? Like when I say that, because like, to me, it seems like you want to accomplish everything there is to accomplish in an aircraft. Well, and I think it would be one of those things that's in your bucket list. You know, if you'd given out, out there, I'm like, cool, I haven't done that. So what would it be awesome. called if I said what's on your bucket list and that was number one? How do you term it? Uh, so you have, they call it a cat. So a cat shot, which is off the catapult, and then a trap, which is basically when you trap one of the cables. So I'd love to do a cat and a trap, you know. Dude, how cool is that? That would be fun. So yeah. you, you make the turn and you're yeah. on the runway and you're looking down it. Do you have air traffic control in your in your headphones or does your instructor know what's up or no, how does no, this you, work? you're talking to everybody in your headphones through your helmet so you got the tower that's clearing you out you know once you uh they clear you for takeoff once you take off you go to a departure frequency that tells you okay you're clear in the airspace and then once you get into the airspace you switch switch over to a tactical frequency and say hey i'm in this airspace for this event and then they clear you into your airspace and then they monitor make sure guys aren't so is your blood pressure right now, is it over 180? Is your heart rate just bouncing through the roof? Are you nervous as shit? Or are you so trained for this and capable that you're just like, dude, I'm, I got a heart rate monitor on. It's probably going to read I'm 60 beats a minute right now and I'm relaxed as hell. Yeah, I emphatically couldn't say that. Uh, I would say, yeah, you're, you're just probably, you know, it's it would be similar to um, like the first time you played varsity baseball, right? I don't know about that, Brian. but you know, but the game goes quick. Like when you go up, you like the pitchers are just throwing. different level. Yeah, okay, I see you know, saying. and then eventually the next time, like all the guys start to slow down a little bit. The game starts you start to, to slow get down. it more. Yeah, yeah, you you start to anticipate. So I think you know, kind of, I would say the same. It was very similar to, to the same football game. You know, first hit the Division One level. You know, each time you go up level, the speed gets quicker. You know, the everything that's going on, and your first game is just like a blur. But then eventually, you know, your brain catches up. You start to you start to anticipate. You build those neural pathways to be able to figure out what's going on. I think it was very similar with being in, a, in the cockpit of a fighter jet. You're like, dude, I could launch. I appreciate the comparison, but I don't know if there's anything in the world that can compare to being a fighter. I just don't. I just don't know. In my mind, I know that there's importance everywhere. And I'm not sure. trying to dramatize. I'm just yeah. saying like. Does he reach over and tap you on the shoulder and said, Hey buddy, quit daydreaming. It's time to go. Yeah. Or are you just like Beavis and butthead in there ready to go? What, what are you experiencing? Dude, right you're there? just, I mean, so you got a little bit of it to where like, Hey, you clear for that, you know, Hey, these words are said, I do this. So those procedures are just kind of rote and you have to, you know, rote memory, you have them down. And then as you're doing them, what you're experiencing, you're looking out and your brain is trying to figure it out. And you know, and you're, you're basically just, yeah, you have a couple of, you know, of, of the takeoff process. There's like four things I really need to do. There's a lot more going on, but these four things I can't screw up. You know, got to get it in into to afterburner. I have to rotate the nose. I got to get the gear up before I overspeed it, and then I got to climb out. Other than that, everything else is just kind of, you know, just kind of uh, 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 or, or secondary procedures, if you will. You know, it's all about prioritization. You know, and and that's how it goes through the other things. Like you go into the airspace, you're like, okay clearing your space you're like okay there's three things i have to do let's make get those three things in out of the way and then everything else is like fucking I'm, i gotta figure this out you know and are you scared at all no i wouldn't i wouldn't say scared is a word not one bit i you know i wouldn't say that like you know you're exhilarated i mean there's there's so many you know emotions that are going through you i mean yeah you are you're elated you're apprehensive 
as far as you know this because it's a new uh, a new experience. You're, you're freaking excited off your off the get up because you know the smells. You know, and it's not just like you're on. You know, you're you're maneuvering in, in three dimensions, and you're we're maneuvering very rapidly in three dimensions. So uh, a lot of it, half the time, is you're just trying to stay awake. You know, so you're not uh, knocking yourself out in this plane. So. You but, mean, uh, I mean, not literally bored. You're talking about actually passing out. Yeah, yeah. like Because you know, of air and oxygen. Or because of your blood's rushing out of your nugget, you know? So, yeah. And that's the thing that you learn in training, too, yeah. even as a passenger. Exactly. So, now, does, so you hear those words. Mm-hmm. So, tell me about the runway, the takeoff, and then explain to me what G-force is, and do you get there on your first flight? Um. So, your first couple flights are, are going to be, um, yeah, you take off, you get the, that, and I mean, it's largely benign because you've done it enough in other airplanes. So, so. that takeoff in an F 16 is no different than that 19 passenger? Well, plane. obviously, things are happening a lot quicker. How fast know? are you going on a takeoff in an, uh, an F 16 on the uh, runway? Yeah, How fast? I would say you're, you're right around about 160, 165. You're, you're, uh, you're rotating. And what and are you in a 737 or 747? Um, I'm not, a, I can't equate, but like, let's say, a, like, let's say a modern commercial airplane, you're, you're probably about 140. On take on wheels yeah. up. Yeah. 140, 150. Once again, it's all depending on, you know, loading, but yeah, 140 or 150, you know, is what it is. So the, yeah, the plane's going to be a little bit faster on rotation. Obviously it accelerates there a lot quicker. So, um, you know, you get up, uh, and I do remember, it's funny because I do remember my first takeoff in F-16 and it was, you know, it was, it was Luke, it was hot. And I just remember, cause you you get so, um, you know, you're, you're so apprehensive. You, you already think you know what to expect. You rehearsed it a million times in your brain. And then, um, I do remember when I threw it in the afterburner, started taking off and I'm like, this isn't happening as fast as I thought it would. And the reason, and the reason being is, um, you know, it was June in phoenix so hot. it's super Heat hot like crazy yeah the planes that we're flying are older planes so they're not they're not the combat models i.e they don't have as much thrust as the combat planes and um you know so i, I just remember being like ah oh, this that wasn't as bad as i made it out to be so a li- little bit different of a segue fast forward i made it through training i'm now in korea it was my first assignment same type of plane same f-16 going out i'm on a runway now it's a little bit shorter it's about nine thousand feet but this is a frontline combat f-16 um it is january and it's at sea level i remember throwing it in afterburner and literally and this is i already have a couple hundred hours in the plane and it scared the shit out of me like i i got thrown back so hard i rotated and climbed away so quick. It was everything I could do to just to get the gear up before it oversped. I mean, it was explain that get the gear up. Get the, we- so retract the gear. So these planes, the fighters will ex- they'll accelerate so fast that if you know by the time right as you lift off, you pull the gear up. Well, just the hydraulic motors actuating to actually retract and get it in. The plane is still accelerating that whole time. So typically, you you'll rotate at about 160 knots, 150, 165 knots, somewhere in there. Your gear overspeeds at 300 knots. So in the time it wow. takes for just the gear to go up, you'll accelerate 140 knots. Explain you know? a knot. A knot. Oh, sorry. A knot's kind of like a mile per hour. So the difference, it's a nautical term. Nautical. Um, so like a mile per hour is based on uh, the standard mile, which is 5,280 feet, which a nautical mile is 6,000 feet. So typically a knot is going to be a little bit faster. Fast. So 140 knots is... You know, I'm doing math in public and I'm going to embarrass myself. But Don't even try. I always yeah. do this. And so, I always do. 100, yeah. So 150 miles an hour is about 100 or 150 knots is about 165 miles an hour. Really? Mm-hmm. So what is G-force then? So G-force is 
the force of gravity on your so on on your body. So right now you and I are sitting at one G, right? So it's just the force of gravity um, based on where we're at. So now you and and everybody has experienced high G's. Everybody has. You jump off this table, jump two or three feet, and just at that point of impact, your body probably went through twelve to fourteen G's. But it's instantaneous and it kind of goes away. It doesn't build up. It doesn't build up. So now, you know, the, the big things with G-forces is your onset and how long, you know, your onset of Gs, like how quickly those forces come upon you. And I'll explain a little bit more about how quickly those forces come upon you, how long you're exposed to those forces and what the total amount of the force is. So um, as simply as I could put it, so the G-force is like 1G. So right now, your bo- so take your body weight right now, that's 1G. You go up in these aircraft, the F-16 is one of the higher G planes that are in the inventory right now. The, the, the plane is, uh, is capable of sustained 9G flight. So you basically take your body weight, multiply it by 9, and that's the forces that are, are being, being pressed upon your body. So when you said 10 minutes ago, when you were at 9G in, mm-hmm. in was it Korea? Was that the flight that you yeah. went to 9G? Oh, it wasn't. It, it was no, just a takeoff. It was just yeah. a takeoff. So yeah. when you're at 9G... Yeah. Are, are, do you have any control of your body that time or are you just sit and Well, you're sitting back? there holding it. And, and once again, that goes in training. Like you have, you know, your G suits, you know, um, that we have that, that inflate to help. Cause the big thing is when you're under those positive G forces is basically, you know, that force of gravity is pulling towards your butt and towards your feet. So your blood in your head is rushing from your head all the way down to your feet. So what you're doing is you have a G suit that inflates uh, around your legs and your waist, which basically what that will do is it helps restrict blood movement. You also do a type of grunting um, that we use called an anti-G straining maneuver, uh, AGSM, which basically helps hold your, you're basically tightening all your muscles and it helps you hold the blood in place to keep you from passing out. So, and there's, there's techniques and you, you have to go through uh, extensive training to be able to, to know how to do it. And could you, is it like riding a bike? Could you do it today? Well, right I do now? It, well, I still do it. So. You still do it? Yeah. Cause I'm still actively flying. So fighter aircraft. So you have to, you are okay. Yeah. Here's where we're at with this. <laughs> you're on your first flight. Yeah. You're not a fighter pilot yet. Correct. You're training, training still. to be, yeah. Training to be. Yeah. So when I first, when I first started thinking about talking to you, because I'm so intrigued by air travel mm-hmm. commercial, sure. cause I do it a lot. I yeah. don't do it as, as much as a, a ton of people that I know, but I do it more than I ever thought that I would. Sure. And I, there's always a lot of questions that go through my mind. Yeah. And I've talked to you at, at a lot of different events and picked your brain, but I've never yeah. really been able to clarify my questions on why and really get detailed information and answers from you because it's loud or noise or whatever. Sure. I need you to let me know if we can continue this because now like the military part of this has got me way intrigued to where sure. before I wanted to get through the military and into the commercial part because that's really what a lot of Americans are experiencing. Sure. This part of it's almost like, we need to understand what you guys are doing and, and what, what sacrifices are being made in the intelligence level and the commitment level and the, and, and everything that goes into being what a fighter pilot. So can we continue this? Cause there's, I think we're going on an hour 45 right now. Sure. We're going to have to do two more parts Okay. because I'm, I'm nowhere near done with the military part of this. Sure. The, the, the thing about the, you know, the little questions I want people to understand is that I'm learning along the way too, is that I've done some studying up on it, but I like to be intrigued and in, in listening and learning. Uh, so when I say like, what's G-Force, I understand what it is, sure. but I want to make sure that we can ask questions to make sure that people out there listening have an understanding of what we're talking about. Because yeah. I, I really want to know what, 
you know, QGs is or breaking the sound barrier or what's Mach 4, what's Mach 2, what's Mach 3? How fast is Brian Moore gone in a jet plane? It blew my mind to, 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 to hear that you could take off that you take off in a military fighter jet at 140 miles an hour, 160 miles an hour. I thought it would be like 300 miles an hour by the time they're getting as fast as they can go. Um, and then, you know, I want to just continue it on to what you're doing today, which you are a commercial pilot now, Sure. but you still spend time in fighter jets. Yep. And then on top of that, you're married to another fighter pilot. Yep. That's a commercial pilot. Now, Rachel, is it Rachel Moore? Yep. Rachel Moore. She didn't hyphenate it. No. Good for you, yeah, Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> so Rachel's coming in next week yeah. to do this. Yeah. And now I'm worried that I'm going to have to get more of her time because it's just intriguing to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a badass story. It's a badass lifestyle. And you, you're very well written and real spoken on it to where you're, you're good at explaining to what's going on. <clears throat> I do want to get more into though, this first flight when we meet next week, I want to get more into, do, do you automatically tell yourself like, I'm ready. I'm ready now. Or how much time is left? So be thinking about all that. Like yeah. now, now how much time is left until you are in there by yourself, you're going overseas or when you got yeah. to Korea or whatever yeah. it is. Well, so, you know, you're the first flight, you know, it, it actually, by that time you've, you've uh, already established that you could fly these type of airplanes. So it's actually only about five rides that you're flying with a five to seven rides. There's a guy in the backseat. Um, and then, at, or sorry, I wouldn't even say that. Do you do four rides with someone in your backseat? And then now you start doing solo rides. Um, so it's four flights. Okay. So that's where I want to pick up yeah. on our next talk. I want to talk about, I want to pick up on the last dual combo flight with your instructor mm -hmm. and what was said after it. And do you get a high mark? Are there grades that are given out at that time? And then the first solo flight. Mm -hmm. And then I want to move into the graduation process or the part to where you become an actual fighter pilot and then your missions and what you experienced in that. Sure. And then, you know, to me, I always talk about like, how hard is it to give up something like, all right, I'm a boxer. I knock people out. It's time to quit. You see Vander Holyfield going there too many times. And the guy, you know, he kind of <clears throat> loses a little bit of his senses or a baseball player might hang on too long or a UFC fighter might hang on too long. Is there a certain time window? Is there a window that a, a window that a fighter pilot has? Is it, does it end someday? No matter what, <clears throat> do you call it quits? I want to go into all of that coming up. Is that cool? Yeah, absolutely. Brian Moore guys, this guys and girls, this dude has got an awesome story, especially with what he comboed up meeting his wife in Training school, right? In Texas? No, we met in Korea. You met in Korea. This story is so awesome. It's so American, even though they met on foreign land, but they, they're just a badass couple, awesome family. Their, their brother, Rachel's brother, Brian's brother-in-law, Wade, is my best friend. And um, I'm intrigued by it. I can't wait to do it again. Please support the partners that support us. Tom, hit that button. Leith Lofton, what you going to do when the money's all gone? We will be back with part two with Brian Moore soon. Thank you all for listening. last too long, so what you going to do? Money's all gone I'd rather be poor Living off in a hole Than rich as hell Without a soul Life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do When the money's all gone Say life on earth Won't last that long What you gonna do When the money's all gone